0: The sermon text is 1 John 5, um, 13 through 21. It's page 864 in the Bibles in the pews. I write the th- these things to you who believe in the name of the Son, name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask. We know that we have what we have. Asked. We know what we have. <laughs> we know that we have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pr- he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those who sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrong- wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Back when I was in school, I got a part-time job to try to, you know, have a little extra money and take muscle on dates and things like that. I worked at uh, the SAT prep uh, Kaplan company, and my job was to teach SAT courses to high school students. And part of that job was also to sit and keep the timer while they took exams. Now, for some of us, it's been a long time since we've sat and tried to write a timed essay. But maybe you're still in that world. Maybe you're a student. Maybe you're a teacher. But if you can remember back to what those days were like when you had to take those exams, do you remember like, as the time was running out, how you kind of just... Write everything you can in the last three sentences. Just cram every possible thing before it's time to put your pencils down. And then you're still writing, and it's pencils down. Well, I know that that is not how Scripture was written, right? I know that 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 was not what was happening in 1 John. And yet, when I read these closing verses, I can't help but be reminded of some of those essays I read. Because these last two paragraphs are just packed. They have so much... In it, there, there's a different subject, it seems, on every line. Something worth two or three sermons apiece. So we've got a lot to do this morning, is what I'm trying to tell you. We've, we've got a lot to cover in a short span of time. And so here's what we're going to do. To get all this stuff taken care of, uh, so that we can wrap up this letter, next week we're going to start a new series in the book of James. I want to do, I want to ask a couple questions. First, I want to ask... What is all this stuff he's telling us about the sin that leads to death? What is that? What's going on with that idea? And then, why does he end this passage with a commandment? And then finally, how are we supposed to respond to that command? So let's start at the beginning. What is all this stuff about the sin that leads to death? The last little bit of this letter is very encouraging. It ends... uh, on a pretty positive note, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the whole point of the letter, right? That's what Pastor Mason was sharing with us last week, that he wants us to know. The reason he wrote this letter is so that you as a believer will know without a shadow of a doubt that you have Eternal life, right? Pastor Mason, he went through all those different verses all throughout this book that say that thing. Remember, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And then he elaborates on that thought. He goes on to say, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. So he says, Jesus is yours. And if you know Jesus is yours, then you also know God hears you when you pray. You can be confident. Why? Well, I mean, it's the basic gospel. The reason you can be confident is gospel 101. When I'm trying to tell people about faith, I always tend to gravitate towards 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, God made him, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. So that's the basic gospel. The gospel is Jesus gets all our sin, and we get all his righteousness. And that means we're welcome. It means we are accepted. It means we are desired by God. It means our Heavenly Father receives our prayers as if they're coming from Jesus' mouth. Amen? Amen. That's reassuring, right? I mean, I hope that's super reassuring. God hears our prayers like he hears Christ's prayers. In in fact, other, other places in Scripture tell us that Christ is actually interceding for us so that God hears our prayers. But then, John goes on to say... If you see any brother or sister committing a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There's a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. What is all that about? A sin, he says, there is a sin that leads to death, and we... Shouldn't even bother praying about it. So are we at risk then? Is this the hidden loophole? This is the the way that that blessed assurance we talked about. Is this how it gets taken away from us? Okay, well let me quickly, as we look at that, point out a couple things. First of all, it's worth noting that John, he does not tell us exactly what he's talking about. He doesn't. Now, a lot of people think the original audience understood what he was talking about. But it's not crystal clear. And if somebody tells you it is crystal clear, they're they're lying. There's a lot of books written on this. There are a lot of opinions on this verse. People have made lots of guesses trying to say exactly, precisely pinpoint what this means. But I want to tell you a simple rule. Whenever you come to a passage in scripture like this, whenever you come to a verse that isn't crystal clear, here's how we should read them. When you come to a confusing passage, you need to allow the clear passages in scripture to speak to it, right? You need to go to the places that are crystal clear to help you understand the stuff that's a little bit confusing. And this is definitely one of those cases. I have met many Christians, I have met with Christians even in the last few weeks who are worried about the state of their salvation. Worried that maybe by accident they have committed some unpardonable sin. They are wrestling with exactly what Pastor Mason preached about last week, with exactly what this letter is about. They're wrestling with whether or not they can be assured of God's love whether or not they can believe that God really welcomes them. But Scripture tells us very clearly that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you do not need to lay awake wondering if you have sinned the sin that leads to death. And there are some very clear passages that speak to that fact. There are a lot of clear passages, in fact, that say that when Jesus saves you, he never lets you go. In fact, I want you, I want you to repeat that for me. Say, he will, me he will never let me go.
0: He will never let me go.
1: He will never let you go. John chapter 10, he says, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Jesus promises that if you belong to him, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Say, he will never let me go. He will never let me go. And then Paul, in Romans, he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Scripture is very clear that Jesus saves us and when he saves us, he saves us all the way. If you're in him, you don't need to, hear, need to fear. Say it one more time. He will never let me go. He will never let me go. So, that means that John cannot be saying that there is this one secret special sin that we need to be on the lookout for because that's the thing he won't forgive. If you do that one, well, he will let you go. I mean, think about this. If Jesus can be nailed to the cross, literally dying, and he can look out to the crowd and say, Father, forgive them, you're not going to be able to do much worse than that. No, I think instead, when we, what this passage means, what it's most likely referring to is the kinds of people he's been talking about the whole letter. <clears throat> the kinds of people that he have, has been mentioning since chapter 1. People who do not really believe they need a Savior. But instead, they live their life denying sin. And therefore, they they also live their life denying their need for Christ. Do you remember that? All the way back in chapter 1, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. It's most likely the sin that cannot be forgiven is is, just a life lived rejecting Christ. It's like that old hymn says, the only fitness he requires is that we see our need of him. And so I hope that might ease some of your consciences here. If you're struggling with assurance, then I, I hope that this will put your mind to rest. On the other hand... I hope you're not sitting there thinking, oh, great. Well, this means I can sin as, as much as I want, not and, and, and I won't do that unpardonable sin. That's like the young couple that, that comes for counseling, and they say, well, pastor, you know, we're, we're dating, we're, we're, we're thinking about marriage, and I'm just wondering, you know, how far is too far? How far can we go when we're alone with one another before we cross the line? And, and you know what that question's about, right? That's the question of how close to the line can we get? (laughs) How close can we nuzzle up against sin without actually sinning? Now, of course, we know Scripture says that we should flee sexual immorality, right? I say that to, to remind you that if you're in Christ, you don't need to worry that you might accidentally commit the unpardonable sin if his spirit is in you and you hear that and then all of a sudden your desire is to commit all the other sins but the unpardonable one, maybe you should be worried. <laughs> maybe, maybe that is a bad sign. And I think that's a pretty good transition into what I, the rest of this passage, this last verse especially, where I want to spend the rest of our time together. Verse 21, it says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Why do you think he ends the letter this way? Why does he end his letter with a command? It's pretty striking, right? You've seen there are other letters in scripture and they usually don't end with something like this. My daughter Ruby is getting to that age now where I can trust her to leave her alone on occasion Uh, to go run an errand, go walk the dog or something like that, and she'll sit with her brothers and sisters, and they're all alive when I get home. It's very wonderful. (laughs) But more often than not, when I'm about to head out the door, I will give a few quick commands as I leave. I'll say, please do not eat in the living room. Right? Please put away your folded laundry before I get back. If the other kids start fighting, give me a call. Usually, though, the last thing I say when I walk out the door is something that I'm pretty sure they're going to encounter while I'm gone and something I want them to remember. And it's the same here. John, he has not been speaking directly about idolatry in this letter. Right? It hasn't really come up directly. He's talked about Mostly about God's love. He's talked about our assurance of salvation. He's talked about the proof of an authentic Christian life. You remember those weeks when we talked about right? There's a a doctrinal proof. Here's the things that we believe if we're Christians. There's a relational proof. Here's how we love one another if we are really believers. And then there's a, a behavioral proof. This is the way we live. We live lives that... Uh, pursue holiness and righteousness and seek to glorify God if we really are believers but in this last couple of words he gives this final command dear children keep yourselves from idols and he says that because this is something we all deal with all the time idolatry it's something that comes up constantly in the Christian life. Now, it's, for our congregation, we've been worshiping together now for several months, but it's been even longer than that, I think, since we directly preached a sermon series on idolatry. So I think it's worth just quickly defining that term so we know what we're talking about when I say idolatry. See, traditionally, idols were these physical representations of false gods, And in the Old Testament, you get verses like Psalm 115, where it describes idols, saying, But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet. But they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their mouth. And those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. That's how we might think of idols when the word first comes up. But the truth is, idolatry is a much broader term than that. Idolatry is much bigger than just bowing down to some kind of carved image, some kind of molded image of a god. No, idolatry idolatry is at the heart of every sin. Idolatry is at the heart of every single sin that we will ever commit. The first commandment that God gave, the first of the Ten Commandments. Remember, it's, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. No other gods besides me. No other gods other than me. But every time we sin, what do we do? Every time we sin, it's because we have chosen to put something or someone before God. We have chosen to bow down to live our life in obedience to something other than God. We believe that something besides God is worthy of our devotion. You know, idolatry, it it happens whenever we put anything in the world above God. And that means idolatry, it's not just vices. It's not just bad things. In fact... Most of the time, our idols aren't bad things at all, right? Most of the time, our idols, they start off as good things, as gifts from God. Good things from God that we have allowed to become ultimate things for us. Whenever a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. Let me say that again. Whenever a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. So whenever there's something or someone in your life that you look to and you say, this is what I need to be happy. This is what I need to be secure. This is where I find my worth. This is where I find my identity. That means it's become an idol. So for instance, work. That's an easy one. Like Work is a good thing. Adam and Eve, they had jobs in the garden before the fall. Before there was even sin, there was work. But when your occupation becomes the thing that defines you, when it becomes the the source of your self-worth, or your your lack of a good job becomes the source of your self-pity, when you're willing to work to the detriment of your soul and your family, Work becomes an idol. Or relationships. Relationships are good. We have a a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who has lived eternally in a perfect relationship within himself. And he created us. So that means we need relationship. We were created for relationships. And yet, when we choose a relationship over Obedience to God's clear commands. Or when the lack of being in a relationship leads us to bitterness in our heart and and pushes us away from God, relationships become an idol. Or money, right? Money's a good thing. It's certainly nice to have enough resources to, to, to live. But when money becomes your source of security so that you would do anything to get it, or you will despair when you lose it, it becomes an idol. Or how about this one? Reputation. We should want to have a good reputation. In fact, in Scripture it says that if you want to be a leader in the church, you should have a good reputation in the community. But, when the approval of other people becomes more important to you than God's approval. When we despair at the sound of criticism or we compromise ourselves to stay on people's good side, our reputations become an idol. You see what I'm saying? Whenever a good thing becomes the ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. And like that psalm says, it's still true today Those who worship them become like them, empty, broken, less than what God created you to be. And the sad truth is we can make an idol out of anything. There are as many different idols as there are people to worship them. And so for a very good reason, John, as he's walking out the door, he says... Stay away from them. Because he knows it's a temptation that you are going to face every day. A thousand different ways you're going to face it. So what do we do about that? How do we respond? What do we do with this warning as we move on to the next letter? Well, I want to tell you this morning that there is only one antidote to idolatry. There is only one thing that can break the power of a false God in your life. Do you know what it is? The true God. That's right. The only thing that can break the power of a false God is if you come in contact with the true and living God. And there's two key words here, I hope you notice, that are really, they are in there to direct us to our freedom. It's those first two words. Dear children. Say that. Dear children. Dear children. children. See, those two words, if you've got that in your head today, if you were really able to apprehend that, to to believe it in your heart today, that would have the power to break the chains of whatever idol is holding you a slave. Because what John has been telling us through this whole letter up until the very last verse is the very simple message that God loves you. And you and I, we will only be satisfied when our hearts are delighting in him and him only. Dear children, it means we are dear to God. We are his dear children. Do you understand just how mind-blowing that actually is? Do you understand how radical an idea that is? That this perfect, holy creator of the universe has spoken to the world. He has spoken to a people who are defined more than anything else by rebellion by sin, by idolatry, people who have rejected him at every turn. People who, even the most holy among us, we sin every day in thought, in our words, in our actions. And he has spoken to that miserable group of people and he has said to us, beloved children, dear children, John says the purpose of this letter is that you would know that. That you would know that you have eternal life. That for all eternity, God has chosen you to be in his presence with him. That's incredible. Look, I cannot think of one person Who would choose to be with me for all eternity. (laughs) Especially the ones that know me well. But God has. God wants me to be with him. And he wants you too. He delights in me. And he delights in you. He delights in you so much. That even knowing all your sin, even knowing everything that you have ever thought, every way that you have ever lusted or been angry or every idol that you have ever worshipped, past, present, and future, he chose to come into the world and be nailed to a cross and die so that you could live with him forever. If you look to Christ for your salvation, you are called, what was it again? Dear children. Dear children. Forever. And it's a fact. Right? He says, I write this so you will know. I really like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, every person who believes in the name of the Son of God has eternal life and we may not doubt this. It's not a matter of inference. It's not a matter of deduction. It is a revelation from God. He, he doesn't tell us to form an opinion about it. He says, believe it. God has spoken. It's not up for debate. The only thing that has the power to break us away from our dead idols The only thing that's going to free us from this cycle of sin where we turn to the things of the world. Where we turn to money and power and sex or reputation and relationships and jobs or whatever to give us a sense of identity. The only way that we're going to find that they always fail us. That they always break our hearts. That they always leave us empty and, and longing. is to hear our living God say, I love you. So I want to be clear, the answer to idolatry is not just to buckle down. It's not simply to say, I'm going to sin less now. But the answer is what some of the old Puritans would call the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. It means... Letting the love for God grow so large in our life that there isn't room for anything else. It's finding such deep satisfaction in Him that the lies of the world, that the temptation of sin, it just can't fool us anymore. It's like that old hymn, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at His wonderful face. And the things of the world, they grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And so as we wrap this up, I want to close by sharing with you a little story of what this has looked like for me. I'm a work in progress. I'm not standing here telling you I have already gotten there, but I I can tell you that, that my chief idol, the thing that I'm always in danger of bowing down to, is the approval of others. It's the approval of you all, actually. I want you to approve of me. I want you to think that I'm a good pastor, a godly man, a good dad, a good husband. And for a lot of years, that meant that I was doing, I was willing to do whatever it would take to avoid the appearance of failure. Failure. I'd do whatever it takes to avoid disappointing people. And although I was a Christian, although I worshipped the Lord, if if I was being really honest, I would say that the fear of failure, the fear of disappointing other people, it drove me in ministry more than my love for God. And one day, God blessed me by letting me fail. God blessed me by letting me get everything I was most afraid of. He let me go through a time where people were very disappointed with me and they were very vocal about it. Where all my hard work really had amounted to nothing. And in that place, I remember just being overcome with grief. You know why? Because my idol had let me down. I was crushed. I was despairing. And in that moment, I cried out to God. And I, I'll never forget it. I was sitting there and, and I was just consumed by all these feelings. And you know, I'm a pretty stoic guy most of the time. And so it, it's, it's, it, when I feel things, it, I really feel them. I was depressed. I was heartbroken. I was, I was ready to give up. And in that moment, I asked God what he thought of me. And look, I'm not Pentecostal. I, God doesn't give me direct revelation. <laughs> but in that moment, I swear, the word that God put in front of me was the word champion. Yeah. Now, I was not a champion <laughs> by any worldly standard. I had really made a mess of things. But in that moment, God, in his love, allowed me to see myself as he sees me in Christ. And you know, in that moment, well, it broke me down, but it also broke my idol. (laughs) It made me realize that that it was God's love that I needed, not the applause, not not your approval. Now I still love you. But the only love that's going to change my life is his, not yours. And I'll still stumble from time to time. But I can say I am not the man I was back then. See, the world it's full of empty promises. They will only bind you. They'll eat you up. And I I don't know what your particular idol might be. But I want to encourage you, wherever you are, turn to him today. Let him speak his love to you. And find your freedom in him. Dear children, you understand? God loves you. Yes. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that your love grows in our hearts and in our lives. The way that you drive out idols and sin. We thank you for the way that you are able to free us even from the oldest, longest, most clinging sins in our life. God, I pray right now that you would expose those hidden idols, the things that we may not even realize we're worshiping, and that today, Lord, you might set us free. Lord, we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.